Everybody doing well today or not? Yeah, I get it, man. Um, this is kind of an important announcement. Next week, we are not going to be gathering in this room. Uh, we're going to be gathering here, but we're going to be outside. Uh, why is this day important? Uh, besides the fact that we're uh, going to be outside eating f- good food, uh, hanging out, getting to know each other. Uh, one of the values of this church, the way we express it is 90-10. That 90% of who we are as a people is not inside the walls of this building. 90% of it is outside these walls. um, And that includes even the immediate outside of these walls. Because Crossroads, by God's grace, uh, has been granted this place in God's world right here in the city of Grand Rapids. And when we get outside of these walls on a Sunday morning and we have good food and the smells of that food go into the neighborhood. We've had many people from the neighborhood also join us in our uh, eating, our feasting together. And so um, also we have a lot of new people in this church. And so don't look at this as a one-off Sunday where uh, we're not going to be here doing what we normally do. So I'll just do something else or go to another church. If that, you're just missing it. Um, We don't exist for ourselves. We don't even just exist, God and me, me and God. We exist for the people who are around us right now, to love and to serve, to wash feet. And we as a community exist for the city, uh, to wash the feet of the city. And so, therefore, um, look forward to seeing you guys next week. Uh, Also, um, today, we're coming to... (laughs) Sadly, the end of summer. <laughs> um, and in this, during the summer, we've been in this series called Discipleship Practices. Uh, sometimes we describe these discipleship practices as spiritual disciplines. Uh, I, I like the term discipleship practice uh, because that's one of our values as well as a church. We're a church of disciples, disciples of Jesus who are also making disciples. And when you look at the life of Jesus, uh, you see that there are practices in his life that that become the rhythm of his life. Things like prayer and worship, taking taking in the word of God, service, fasting, hospitality. Um, And then he, he says, come follow me. As I have lived my life, Uh, I want you to also live like me. As I walk, I want you to walk like me. Today we're going to look at Sabbath. And I will say right now, I wasn't ready for what I was going to uh, study. Um, And I can probably already say right now, this sermon was probably more for my own heart. Um, I, oh, I needed this. Um, I did promise this back in July that we would do Sabbath, and um, so here we are. Uh, Stand for the reading of God's word from Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58 is a pretty common text, um, even for Christians, even though it's in the Old Testament. But this part of it I don't think is. It's the end of Isaiah 58, beginning at verse 13. This is God speaking. God says, if you keep your feet 
from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day. And if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor that day by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. Then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I, says God, will cause you to rise in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on your rich inheritance, the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word for now. You can be seated. Yeah, I know, I know many people who, who love Isaiah 58. Uh, for many, it's even a favorite text, um, including me. Uh, this is God speaking. God is just bearing his heart uh, with the nation of Israel. I mean, when you look at how Isaiah 58 begins, this is God speaking. He says, shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a, tri- like a trumpet. Um, that's what he's saying to Isaiah as he proclaims uh, this word from God. And if you know the text, it's essentially a text about the kind of fast that, that God desires. We talked about fasting, of, of, of saying no to things and, and saying no to food and all of that. And, and God uh, spells out actually the kind of fast that he desires. Uh, look at verse 6 and 7 of Isaiah 58. Is this not the kind of fasting that I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer uh, with shelter? And, and, and God just lays this out in not only his heart, but then the promise that if, that if we live into this, I mean, he says, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall speed, spring up speedily. You shall call. The Lord will answer. In fact, you shall cry out, and I will say, I am at your service. And the Lord will guide you continually. He will satisfy your desires in scorched places. He will make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you will raise up the foundations of many generations. You will, call, you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. I mean, it's just this beautiful promise of, of God restoring and repairing not just broken people, but even a broken world. And we stop there with Isaiah 58. And we, we, we don't keep reading into the text that, that, that I first read. And, and, I, and I think the reason why we stop is because it's about Sabbath. And, and, and so many Christians today place little to no value on Sabbath. Uh, and I think part of it is we, we, we think Jesus maybe made Sabbath obsolete or made light of it, or, the, or we go to the other extreme and, and we think Sabbath is the greatest commandment. And I can say in, in my life journey, I've, I've lived in both extremes. 
I grew up in a strict Sabbath tradition. I grew up where, where on Sunday you were not allowed to do anything except go to church and watch the lions. There's no eating out, there's no going to her friends' houses, no swimming, no boating, uh, uh, none of that. And then I got married to a Baptist. And I could not believe all the things that Libby was permitted to do uh, on, on, on Sabbath. But, you know, then I would take her to my church and she would just be shocked at all the men who afterward would be, you know, in a circle lighting up a cigarette. And so... Uh, we both had some things to process together. Some of you guys remember those days, right? Oh, maybe not. No Christian Reform crowd here, I guess. <clears throat> but Sabbath is a, a pretty controversial topic among Christians, and, and, and I think there's a lot of confusion, starting with, did, did Jesus actually make light of Sabbath? Did he even make it obsolete? Or if he didn't, is Sabbath a day or just a concept? And then if it is a day, what day is it? Does it need to be the last day of the week? And then what does it mean to, to not work and what does it mean to rest? And this is what we're stepping into today. And, and what I feel compelled to do is to simply put on the table what God has to say about Sabbath culminating in Jesus, what Jesus said, how Jesus uh, lived into Sabbath, how he walked it out. And I'm going to let the Holy Spirit take it from there. Now, I know I'm breaking one of the rules that one of my professors said about preaching. Every time he, you preach, he said, you need to explain the what, you need to explain the so what, and then you need to explain the now what. Today, I'm giving you the what. I'm giving you the so what. But the ball's in your court to deal with the now what. And we all have the Holy Spirit in us who, can, who, who teaches, who convicts. Um, and so that's, that's the game plan. Before I do that, I, I want to take just a really quick inventory of us, our culture, some things to think about. 86% of American men and 66% of American women work over 40 hours a week. And you might say, so? Is that a lot or is that a little? Well... According to the International Labor Organization, Americans work 137 more hours per year than the Japanese, 260 more hours than the British, 499 more than the French, of course. <laughs> and we know that Americans pride themselves on, on working harder, working longer hours than the rest of the world. I mean, work literally defines us. But I think workaholism might be more dangerous than even alcoholism. Because no one will slap you on the back and say, great job for being an alcoholic. But they will for being a workaholic. 
And yet workaholism has taken just as great a toll on our lives, marriages, families, our walk with Christ, our kingdom impact in this world. Eugene Peterson Peterson says this, he says, work is far more tempting for the average person than sex. And then he, he qualifies that by saying, because work gives us what sex never will. Work gives us an identity. Work tells us we matter. Work gives us our sense of worth, our significance. Now, my, pro- my profession is one of the worst. 42% of American pastors work 60 or more hours a week, oftentimes at the expense of family and even their walk with God. We of all people need to hear what God has to say about Sabbath. So let me start with this. Sabbath is not a human invention. Sabbath is God's idea. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of the story when God created the world. In fact, Sabbath is literally imprinted in the created order. I think you could even argue that the goal of all creation is Sabbath. Because when you think about what Genesis wants us to know about creation, it's first this, that God is at work. Because the only thing that exists when God's God begins to create the world is chaos. And what Genesis 1 wants us to know is that for six days, God moves into the chaos and he brings order, harmony, beauty out of the chaos so that at the end of each day, God can look at that order that he has brought out of the chaos and say, that's good. In fact, if you want a theology of work, which this sermon is not about, Uh, you have it right here. Work is us moving into the chaos, the chaos of our world and bringing about order. It's growing things. It's sustaining things. It's creating and building things. It's ruling and subduing the chaos. It's bringing order out of out of that chaos. Work is, is, is causing the flourishing of God's creation. This is why work, according to God, isn't a curse. Work is a God-given gift. It's why God made us in his image. We are made like God. Who is God? God is the creator who creates. He sustains. He repairs. He heals. He renews. And we, like God, made in his image to be like God, God has entrusted to each of us just this this little corner um, on his creation. Six days a week, we are to cultivate it. We're to bring order to the chaos. We're we're to cause all aspects of that little itty-bitty sphere to flourish to the glory of God. By the way, is that what gets you out of bed in the morning? That's awesome. But the Bible then says God finished the work that he had done and on the seventh day he rested and God blessed the seventh day and he made this day holy. That's that's what Genesis says. 
God blessed the seventh day and he made this day. He made it holy. He set it apart. So think about this. The very first thing that God declares to be holy, it's not a mountain, it's not a temple, it's not even God himself, it's a day. This is why the great Jewish rabbi Abraham Heschel says this, he says, for a Jew to enter the holy is not to enter a place, but to enter a time. He then says, he says, our Sabbaths are our great cathedrals, a holy of holies. Their Sabbath is, is their holy of holies that neither the Romans nor the Nazis were able to burn. You can burn our synagogues. You can burn our houses of worship, but you can't burn down our Sabbath. And then when you read the story of creation... I think it's very easy to conclude that humanity being the final uh, act of creation is, is, is then the apex of creation, but actually humanity is not the last thing that God creates. And the reason why humanity is not the last thing that God creates is because creation is still lacking something, which is why there's a seventh day. And on the seventh day, then God creates Sabbath, which essentially means rest. So think about it. Creation is not complete until God creates a work stoppage. Until there's a day of rest. Therefore, Sabbath is the apex of God's creation. And here's where you have to ask, what, what does it mean to rest? What, what does it mean that, that God rested? Well, in Hebrew, this word for rest is, is, is menuha. And menuha is, is that deep rest that comes from deep satisfaction. It's this deep pleasure, this deep, intense joy. Maybe my best example of menuha from, from my own life um, was being in the delivery room with Libby uh, for the birth of our three kids. And for our first Gabe, I think it was 26 hours. Uh, it was intense labor, blood, sweat, tears. And Menuha is that moment when the work, the labor is done. And words can't even describe menuha when that baby is brought to the arms of its mother and the deep pleasure and the deep satisfaction. That's menuha. And this is God's rhythm. Six days of work, moving into the chaos, bringing order, harmony to, to the world, and then one day of laying the work down to rest, to experience this Menuha, this deep satisfaction. It's good, it's good. Oh, it's really good. Again, both work and rest are important. The rest always follows the work, but the work too, in itself, is incomplete. Because to be complete, the sixth day needs that seventh day 
uh, it, it, it needs that day of rest. In fact, seven in the Bible symbolizes completeness or wholeness. It can't be complete with just six. And what completes it is the seventh, the day of rest. Now, who determined that a week should be seven days? This too is not a human invention. The Egyptian calendar had 10-day weeks, the Assyrian calendar a five-day week, the ancient Romans an eight-day week, the Aztecs had a hefty 13-day week, the French Revolution uh, attempted to bring a 10-week, 10-day week calendar to France, Joseph Stalin in trying to eradicate religion from the Soviet Union went to a six-day week. In fact, most of the ancient cultures didn't even have this concept of Sabbath rest. I mean, the Egyptians, the Romans, they, they, they would look at these, these, these weird people called Hebrews who cease from their work every seventh day. They're like, what's up with this? They had no category. But again, this is not a Jewish idea. This is God's idea. This is God's path. This is God's rhythm. And it's so precious to the heart of God. I want you to think about some things. That when God picks a people who he calls Israel, but he also calls, the, calls his people the least of all people groups because when he picks them, they're living as slaves in Egypt. And God delivers them. Then he brings them into the desert for 40 years, which too is all part of God's deliverance because all the, the candy of Egypt uh, is rotting their soul. So God uses this desert for 40 years to starve them of Egypt and to make them hungry. It's literally what the text says, uh, to, to make their hearts hungry uh, for what their souls really need to, to thrive and to flourish, to create this hunger for God, a hunger for God's presence, a hunger for God's word. And you read, the deeper they went into that desert, the more intense was their experience of God to the point where every day springs are gushing out of the rocks and this food is falling down from the sky. And this food that falls down from the sky that is there every morning. It's such a mystery to them, which is why they call it manha. Manha simply means, what is this? And the Psalms actually tell us what manna is. Manna is literally the food that the angels eat. It's heavenly food that God now is feeding his people in the desert. And it came down every day. And each family was to co collect just, a, just their daily bread, a day's worth. If, if, they, if they tried to hoard it and collect it for two days or three days, uh, the food after 24 hours uh, was filled with worms and maggots. And it's in this context where God instructs Israel on what is so precious to him, Sabbath. Because now every Sabbath, the heavens were closed. The food didn't come down. 
And you can read about this in Exodus 16. They, they say, God, what are we to eat? This manna, it only lasts for one day. And God says, this is what you're going to do. Every Friday, you're going to collect a double portion. But it's going to go bad. Not on Sabbath, it won't. And so God's people had to lay their work down. They had to trust God that God would not just provide their daily bread, but the day before that he would provide a double portion. And this, this word double portion is a technical term that's used throughout the biblical story. Um, it... it, it it, it, it connotes the double blessing of God, the double provision of God. God uh, moving in, in, in ways that they could only speak about it in terms of a double portion. And the double portion is first connected to Sabbath. It only comes when they lay it down and enter into that Sabbath rest. And think about this. Israel experienced the double portion every week for 40 years. Have you experienced the double portion of God? Is there Sabbath in your life? The other thing that amazes me is that God pushes Sabbath into Israel before he gives them the Ten Commandments. Four chapters later that God's going to give Israel the Ten Commandments, one of which is the fourth commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days, says God, you are to labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord worked. He made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day, and he made that day holy. And I don't know what that does to you. That God is actually pushing Sabbath into them before he gives the Ten Commandments. Not only that, but even after he gives them the Ten Commandments, he is still highlighting Sabbath. So you get to Exodus 31, and it says, Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign. A sign? What's God saying here? As they lived into Sabbath, this marked them. The rest of the world, they didn't have a category for this. Who are these people who, who lay it down, who lay down their striving, who, who lay down their labor, who who just stopped from building things and growing things and creating things, who stopped going to the marketplace to buy things, who stopped going to the arena to watch the games. They ceased. They stopped. And the world around them watched. And it screamed to the world, we, we belong to something much greater 
than the world and the world's stuff. We're a people who belong to God. What are we screaming to our world? So in that sense, uh, Sabbath is a sign. It's, it, it's a sign of the world, but, but it went deeper than that. It wasn't just a sign of the world, but God says, uh, this is a sign between you and me, Israel. It's a sign, God says, of the covenant. That's what God says as you keep reading those verses. What do you mean the covenant? It's a sign of the covenant. Well, if you remember the context in which God gives the Ten Commandments, it's on a day when God instructs Israel to approach him like a bride. And on this day, God came down like a bridegroom. The giving of of the Ten Commandments is, is a historic day because it's a day when a covenant was made where there's literally this marriage between God and Israel. And so those Ten Commandments aren't just rules. These are Israel's wedding vows. And Sabbath then being the sign of this covenant is the wedding ring. And this is why one of their vows. Israel, I want you just one day a week, lay it down, turn it off, unplug from your work where it's just you and me. Anybody who's been married knows that, that, that a healthy marriage is built on time together. I mean, my definition of marriage is two best friends who do life together till death do they part. And what erodes a marriage, what causes a marriage to cease is when time together ceases. And Sabbath then is simply creating space to stop listening to all the noise in our world and and to lay all the busyness of our world down so that we have space to actually talk with God, listen to God, worship God. It's essentially creating space once a week to live into all the spiritual practices we talked about this summer. And see, until a person lives into Sabbath, you never really know how hard it is to actually live into Sabbath. I mean, I I have Jewish friends who are devoted to God and they practice uh, Sabbath with all their heart. In fact, I've I've lived in Israel and I watch this every time I lead a tour when it comes to Sabbath, what a game changer Sabbath is. Every Saturday, they lay it down. They cease from all their pursuits. It is almost eerie to watch a city like Jerusalem, which is this hectic, fast-paced, stressful place. Boom! The horn sounds announcing the coming of Sabbath. And the city goes to sleep. Peaceful. Quiet. Serene. You don't think that's screaming something to a stranger who's walking into their world? 
my Jewish guide, I, I, I've come to know that um, every Friday this giddiness starts to well up in him. And I soon realized it's, it's because Sabbath is coming. <laughs> Sabbath is Saturday for them. In his mind, literally, every, every, every Saturday, every Sabbath is like Christmas minus the presents. Christmas once a week. And here's what Sabbath does. Sabbath centers a person's life on God. As opposed to a life that's quickly centered on making money or achieving something or being good at a sport or moving up the social ladder. I mean, that list goes on and on and on. Sabbath is when you have to lay it all down and you're invited to live into your true God. And you find out that if you can't lay it down, you, 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 you start to ask, well, why can't I do this? And you start to see the real gods, the, the things that the Bible would call idols, the, the, the things, I mean, when you think about what even the first commandment is, how, how Israel's wedding vows to God begin, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, you shall have no other lovers in this marriage. Well, well how do you actually know that, that, that you love God more than you love this or you love that? How do you know that there aren't any other lovers in this, in this relationship that we have with God, especially when the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things? I'll tell you how you know. Sabbath. Sabbath not only exposes our idols, but Sabbath also has the power to free us from our idols. Because this is something I think that, that we all know, especially if you get a little bit older and lived enough life, uh, whether it's our work or something as small as a screen or a pursuit. I mean, we think we control these things and we think that by obtaining these things, we have more control over life. But the older you get, you realize how much these things have the power to control you. I mean, just take money, for instance. The Bible says there's absolutely nothing evil about money. There's nothing evil about making money. There's nothing wrong with making Lots of money, but what the Bible does say is the root of all evil is the love of money. And the love of money is, is, is where I must absolutely have it. And why must I have it is because I have come to believe that my self-worth is my net worth. That it's my significance, that my, my whole identity is derived from it. And so I might think to myself that I own my money, but my money really owns me. It's my master, it controls me. And this can be with anything. It can be with our possessions. We think we possess them, but they end up possessing us. And the list goes on and on and on. This is why God in Deuteronomy 5, when he gives a retelling of the Ten Commandments, uh, Israel's vows. He puts a little twist on this when he comes to the fourth commandment. And he says, 
Not only observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you, in six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord, but this is the commentary that's added. God says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And what God is doing there is he is tying Sabbath to their freedom from slavery because in Egypt, Hebrews worked every day from sunup to sundown as slaves. And if you can't lay your work down, if I can't lay my work down, maybe I'm a slave. And why can't I lay it down? Because I can't lay work down or, or maybe it's I'm a slave to the things that my work actually brings into my life. These things become too precious to us, then they begin to master us. And these slave masters will abuse you if you don't lay them down. And what Sabbath is, this is what my Jewish friends say, it's literally one day a week going on strike from work. It's a declaration of freedom from all these masters. And remember the seven, seven is that number of wholeness and completion. We are like God when we work six days a week when we move into the chaos of our world and we bring order by creating and building and growing, by ruling, by subduing, by bringing a flourish to the little corner that God has entrusted to us and doing it to the glory of God. But here's the deal. If we can't lay it down and enter into the seventh day, that Sabbath invitation, we will never become whole or complete. And see, this is why God's, seventh, why God's Sabbath went further than just a Sabbath day, but there's also God instructs a seventh year. God says every seventh year, he says, I want you to stop. Stop planting, stop harvesting, stop making things happen, stop trusting yourselves and what your hands can produce. I want you to trust me for a whole year. And their question was just like it was in Exodus 16. Well, what are we going to eat? And God says, the year leading up to Sabbath, I will give you a double portion. A double blessing. Trust me. And that, that seventh year was also the release of all debts. All debts were forgiven. And it was a release of all the slaves now, slavery was different in that world. It occurred when a person went into too much debt and what they would do, they would sell themselves to their debtor as an indentured servant. And in that seventh year though, was a proclamation of liberty and they were set free. Even the land instructed by God was given a Sabbath. And God still doesn't stop. All these Sabbaths are pointing to the granddaddy of all the Sabbaths, the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is the, is the year after that seventh sabbatical year. 
So if you do the math, it's every 50 years, a jubilee year. And not only is a jubilee year a sabbatical year following a sabbatical year, but in this year, everyone returned to the land that was originally theirs. And land is such a big part of the biblical story. When you read the book of Joshua, the whole book is about land. The first half of the book is about God giving them the land. The second half of the book is God distributing the land. The tribe of Judah, you get this land. The tribe of Simeon, you get this land. The tribe of Benjamin, you get this land. And then it was broken down further. Each family got their own little plot of land. And that land was that family's. They owned it to work it. But here's what happens over time. Maybe because of drought, maybe famine, or maybe just some unwise farming practices, or maybe just even laziness itself, your land might not produce enough. And so now to survive, you have to go into debt. And if it got worse, the family might have to sell the family farm. And if it got so bad, you might have to sell yourself into slavery. And then it's not hard to imagine that uh, it wouldn't be too long before you have two classes of people, the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And this story has been going on throughout history. I don't know if you know right now that one-fifth of the world doesn't get the basic necessities to live. One-fifth of our world lives on less than a dollar a day. And yet another fifth of the world owns four-fifths of the world's resources. Just in light of that, think about what God prescribes to his people. Every seven years, all debts are canceled, forgiven, and every 50th year, it was like hitting the reset button. Everyone got a do-over. Tell me who this is good news to. People who have amassed huge farms in large estates? No. It's good news to the poor. It's good news to the debtor. It's good news to the slave. And sadly, God's people never practiced the sabbatical year, and so the rich got richer, the poor got poor, and the prophets talk about the greed, the violence, the sexual immorality that filled their land. They were no longer a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations, a city set on a hill. And if you don't think God doesn't care about this, let me take you to the very last chapter of the Hebrew Bible, because they order their Bible different than we order our Old Testament. Second Chronicles 36. This is God saying, I carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to Nebuchadnezzar and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to the power And if you want to know the why behind that, what, it's this verse right here. The land enjoyed now its Sabbath rest. And all the time of its desolation, when God's people weren't there, 
the land got to rest until the seven years were completed in fulfillment to what God said to Jeremiah. Paraphrase, Israel, my people, you don't keep my Sabbath, which includes giving my land that I gave to you a Sabbath, I'll take you out so that my land can rest. But Isaiah 61 tells us that when Messiah comes, he will bring jubilee. Something simply known as the year. The year of the Lord's favor. The Sabbath of all Sabbaths. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus launches his whole ministry on a Sabbath in a synagogue. He takes the Isaiah scroll. He unrolls it to Isaiah 61 and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to release the slave and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jubilee. And he gets done reading it preaches the shortest sermon ever preached. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah 61 is Jesus' mission. Jesus didn't break Sabbath. Jesus didn't do away with Sabbath. He taught us what it is. He taught us what it isn't. He showed us how to enter it. His whole mission is Sabbath. To usher in Isaiah 61, Jubilee. And even more, he says, I am the Sabbath. He says, come to me, all you who are worn out and exalted. Exhausted, I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Take the path that I show you, and you will find rest for your souls. He is the rest our souls long for. Like I said, I'm not going to apply this to your life. You have the Holy Spirit who's working in you. Listen to him. But let me end with this. Look at our world right now. We're out of control. People are exhausted. They're working more. They're making less. They're going faster and faster. Our kids are also so caught up in this rat rat race. We never stop. And yet our world has never been more restless. Are you in need of rest today? I'm not talking about leisure. I'm not talking about vacation or even just physical rest. I'm talking about that deep rest, that deep rest for a weary soul. Rest from stress. Rest from worry. Rest from the burden that you might be carrying right now. Rest from taking yourself too seriously. Rest from always trying to prove yourself. Rest from trying to assure yourself that you matter and that you're significant. Jesus invites you into that rest. 
He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And what is real rest? When we go back to when we first learn about it in creation, when it says God rested, I mean, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean that God rested? Did he get tired? Of course he didn't get tired. He's looking at his work, work that is done, and he can look at it and say, that's really good. That's rest. Can you look at your life right now? Can you look at your work in the same way that God looks at his? Well, Jesus said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am Lord of the rest. Just think about it. He is Jubilee. He forgives all our debts. He cancels it. He doesn't just give us second chances. Even in our worst failure, he can just hit the reset button. He restores us. And he says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus does not put more burdens on our shoulders. Jesus takes those burdens off. And how do I experience that rest? I think the Bible says Sabbath is a pretty good place to start. God hasn't changed. He still invites us into a Sabbath rest. Isaiah 58, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way, and not doing as you please, or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land. Spirit of Christ, thank you for living in us. And Spirit, do what you do. Convict us. Melt us mold us and conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.